COVID has impacted all of us, but it's not surprising that its effects have been felt more by certain populations, unsheltered population being one of them. Many of the service providers had to pivot and change the way services were being offered. I checked in with some of them to recap this past year. This is Janita Emerson. She is a CEO of 4th Street Clinic. It has been a very challenging year. I cannot emphasize that enough. We have really had to shift a lot of what we have done over the course of the last year. And then surprisingly, in some ways, we do the same thing that we've always done, which is provide integrated care services to individuals who are experiencing homelessness. The biggest impact of COVID is obviously because this population carries such a high risk with them. They live in communal settings or congregant settings, limited access to basic hygiene. We really had to think long and hard about what was going to be the best way to serve them while keeping them all safe and then keeping our staff safe as well. Starting in last March, we erected tents in our back parking lot. So the best way that we decided to do that was to do most of our services outside. Sometimes it takes a crisis to bring a group together. And I have observed that within the homeless system. Providers have really come together and we're all really working together in a way that I have not seen us work together necessarily in the past. And the same has happened with our staff. They've really come together to support each other. They worked outside in those full hooded gown getups when it was 103. And they do it every day and they do it because they love this population. We've lost 10 people just in the past past year during COVID. That's Matilda Lindgren, Deputy Director at In Between Medical Respite and Hospice for the Homeless. Spending their last few days, weeks, months in this building with no chance to go take a walk in their neighborhood one more time or see old friends one more time. I think that's something that no matter how often we talk about, just been really heartbreaking. I think for myself, that's been the hardest thing to see, knowing we couldn't make their last few days more fulfilled. Definitely have had our fair share of people that come here with nobody. They don't see anybody. They don't get phone calls and that's that. But we do sometimes have people come in that have family that very much want to be involved, but for whatever reason, they can't be the caregiver. And we always respect that. We don't know people's stories prior to coming here. Most of us have had experiences with family where we know where we have to draw our limits. So we're happy to step in and take on that role and let them just be the mom or the sister and not have to be the caregiver. There is a general sense that unsheltered population of Salt Lake City has grown and become even more displaced since the COVID hit. Volunteers of America Homeless Outreach Team spends most of its time out in the community. I spoke with the program director, Amanda Christensen, about this. Visually, it looks like a lot more people, and I think there is truth to the fact that we are seeing an increase in homelessness. But part of the visual piece really is the fact that a lot of places where individuals who may have been experiencing homelessness would typically go, they're not available to them right now. We did see a little bit more desperation from the clients that we were seeing, and a lot of that was because services that they were accessing prior were limited or closed. It was just like, how am I going to get my needs met? Like, where am I going to shower? Where am I going to go to the bathroom? To kind of compound that, a lot of services were moved to like phone call or internet access only. 
even like being able to go in and get a copy of your social security card um, for potentially applying for an apartment. All of those processes have shifted since COVID-19 became really reliant on having access to a phone or internet to be able to fill out appropriate applications because you couldn't walk in anymore. And then we've also seen an increase in embatements as well. Kelly with Open Air Shelter Coalition. Which is where they'll put up signs and kind of say, you can't be here anymore the day before, and then come in with bulldozers and police officers to clear, to sweep the camp. I don't believe that logic because you could also come in and help people clean up a space and provide resources without demolishing it. There's more effective ways of maintaining health and safety and sanitation for everyone in the city besides throwing away people's homes. Abatements of homeless camps throughout Salt Lake City have been highly criticized by some, while others believe they're necessary and critical to keeping our city clean. Ty Bellamy with Black Lives for Humanity is easily found at one of the camps most of the days. I caught up with her at Camp Lasso. Hi. 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 I'm, I'm recording. Okay. Okay. How are you? Oh, my God. I've had better days. Okay. So you got to tell me what's going on. Okay. So have you heard of Camp Lasso? Yeah. When they got pushed on the 10th of December, they went to the freeway that's adjacent to the road home. And then about two hours later, the police came and pushed them from there. So this area was scouted out by a couple of people. Then we knew that it was safe to bring them over here. The goal was always just to have them in a place where they could just be safe, where we could keep track of everybody and where they could get their bearings. Ty, what am I looking at here? So what we're looking at is we're in the middle of an abatement. They're losing their stuff. This is Dale Keller. He is the head of the department that comes out with these abatements from the health department and bulldozes everything. So he's gotten death threats and and threats of physical harm. And so the police are coming out to protect him and the other people. I spoke with Dale Keller about the cost of those abatements, death threats, and his take on the issue. We're able to track pretty uh, carefully, pretty precisely what the cost is. And for the health department in 2020, we spent about a quarter of a million dollars just in environmental health addressing encampments. You know, that's just picking up, partnering with, collaborating with other agencies to coordinate cleanups, maybe working with a property owner, whether that's a business or something else. We will generally hire a labor component, whether that's using inmates from the county jail or hiring advantage services, which the city does as a labor resource, and that's another cost. In a large encampment, usually after we've given notice and had social service outreach, what is left is usually cleaned up with heavy equipment. And that's done for two reasons. Number one is it's more efficient, but way, way more important. In these camps, not to be stereotypical, but we find hundreds and hundreds of discarded syringes because addiction, particularly heroin, is a, is a problem with certain percent of this population. And so I've had some of my staff have needle sticks. So the lack of hand contact is really important. That doesn't include many, many other costs. And you had mentioned one, the police costs, particularly with the safety issue that has become pretty problematic. Probably the most compelling increase in abatements of camps have been the uh, third party folks that uh, will be on site and many times it's a very unsafe environment and so there has to be a lot of police presence and other things I think wouldn't be necessary but 
who are the third party exactly that are spiking up those costs and why do you think they're that angry with you? I don't know. This is a question that I've thought about, and I guess it's just a highly volatile situation, but a number of these folks are there just to help and provide assistance to our unsheltered community. Others, I would argue, this is the perfect vehicle to uh, poke a stick, to agitate police officers and public health officials like myself. Those are the ones that uh, make this considerably more expensive than it should be, and quite frankly, considerably more dangerous than it should be. All that said, it seems as though conducting those abatements is extremely financially and emotionally draining, and I would say volatile. So are they actually necessary? From the health department, we're pretty focused on two issues, the environmental health component of the encampment and the public health component. I could take you to a number of places along the Jordan River, and uh, it's just devastating what encampments have done from garbage and trash and cutting down trees and open burning of campfires and those type of things. And so that's the environmental health piece. But the camps where we get involved, we articulate that it has reached the point where it's a compelling public health issue. Salt Lake City has a Norwegian rat problem, but the rats tend to be near highly vegetated areas or near waterways. In the last several months, every large camp that we've cleaned up, whether it's been Rio Grande or the old Sears property or 7th, 7th, 2nd East, we've seen a substantial uh, population of Norwegian rats that tend to use that as a vector for survival. And then there's, you know, couple of dozen zoonotic diseases associated with rats. And so that's one other public or environmental health issue. This is Maura Sanchez with Just Media and Open Air Shelter Coalition. It's important to recognize that if the city officials, including the mayor, the police and the health department, were really worried about cleanliness and sanitation, We've been asking, demanding that they offer portable toilets and trash containers, and they haven't done so in a consistent manner. I think that in itself proves that it's not the actual argument that any of us should be making. We're not offering basic services to people experiencing homelessness. Also, on the resources that they do offer and that said that people don't choose to accept those services, a lot of the reasons that they don't do so include safety or one of the issues that we've constantly heard is that they don't allow couples, for example. There was a mother with her baby in her arms saying that she couldn't go to the shelter because there were bed bugs in the shelter. And so she couldn't be with her baby there. And that's something that doesn't come up in these cleanliness or sanitation arguments. Also, these shelters were COVID hotspot. There's a lot to consider with regards to sanitation with so-called resources that the city offers. Maura, a million dollar question. Is there a solution? And if so, what is it? Prioritize housing, getting people um, into secure housing. As is typically the case, Mara took the words right out of my mouth. Kelly again was Open Air Shelter Coalition. Yeah, I think the answer 100% is a housing first policy. And what I mean by that is placing individuals into empty and abandoned homes, not abandoned as in derelict or bad, abandoned as in investment properties that aren't housing people. We see new condos coming up on every block and every street corner in downtown Salt Lake City, yet somehow we don't have any room for these folks, right, that are encamped on the streets. 
if the city really wanted to address homelessness, that's what they would do. This was something we used to do in Salt Lake City, you know, went away for various political reasons. Salt Lake City continues to struggle, like many communities around the country, trying to provide solutions for its unsheltered population. A debate rages about the proper course of action. For example, whether treatment for addiction or mental illness should precede the process of moving clients into permanent housing. While some argue that people suffering from the underlying causes of homelessness are not ready for permanent housing, the advocates of Housing First Approach argue that treatment is more effective once a person or family has found stable, long-term home. This is Amanda Christensen with Volunteers of America again. Housing is an issue, for sure. I don't think that we necessarily have, we don't have the housing needed. It's a complex issue and there's two parts to it, right? There's um, potential housing assistance, so the housing assistance dollars. And then the other piece is literally the housing stock. Do we have affordable and deeply affordable units, enough units to house all of the people that need housing? And when we're working with clients on housing, we do run into barriers. We struggle, just like everyone else, to find affordable housing units and and housing units um, that are within, you know, housing voucher limits or that are affordable enough for that individual to afford. I have been a full-time real estate agent in the state of Utah for almost 40 years. Babs DeLay, a principal broker and owner of urban Utah homes and estates real estate market has been smoking hot. As a matter of fact, this is one of the hardest markets I have seen in my almost 40 years in business. And I've been through ups and downs, but this one really takes the cake. We have so few homes on the market that sellers are getting massive multiple offers and buyers are just being beat up like crazy. I can tell you quite frankly, the state's population is going to double in the next couple of decades. Utah is down easily 50,000 units in housing. We are desperate for housing. And to add to that, we are desperate for affordable housing. And we just cannot keep up with the demand. I asked Dale Keller if he had a solution in mind. This is a problem that is growing at such an amazing rate that I just don't know how we can buy or build our way out of it. There's going to have to be some thinking outside the box. I personally, and again, this is Dale Keller speaking for himself, not for the city or for the county, that I think may be a location where it's kept clean. There are potable water, there's garbage collection services and those type of things to allow people to camp because at least in that situation, we're choosing where these locations are instead of near a school or near the Jordan River or near a shopping mall or areas where it has a major negative impact. One of the variables you kind of hit on earlier was the fact that kind of some people just like this life or it's what they're used to. 5% avail themselves to overflow shelters, but we would consider that a success. And so the vast majority of folks on the street now are there because they choose not to avail themselves to the resources available in the county. We'll work with our partners and we'll clean up a camp. And for the most part, people will just move to another area. And so when one thinks of success is moving people from a highly fatigued area to another area, which will quickly become fatigued, that's a pretty low bar. And some of these kind of out-of-the-box solutions, I think, need to be entertained because what we're doing now now is very compassionate, but it's also not sustainable. Now, if there's a health issue, 
Fine, come and deal with it. But don't take some 70-year-old lady's only same thing she's got to her life. This is Rex. Rex has been living on the streets of Salt Lake for past eight years. He was asked about his feelings on abatements. You're going to come out here because I don't have a house to put my stuff in and destroy everything that I have? That is nothing but guerrilla tactics. Come in here and taking my life. Uh, irreplaceable stuff, pictures, mementos, stuff that I will never be able to replace. But if I try to do that to you, I'm going to prison. You know, you're stealing my stuff. You're a thief. I mean, I'll say it. I'll say it to the police all the time. You are a legalized thief. You don't even know me. So who are you to judge me? Well, because you have a badge in a house? Ten years ago, you'd be calling me sir. I used to own my own business. My mental health and a few other things tank that. This is supposed to be the greatest country in the world that I believed in, and I, I don't believe in them no more. I don't believe that another human being be that heartless. I feel like I'm a reject, like an animal. You treat me like an animal long enough, I start acting like an animal. One of some of you big elected officials, why don't you come out here and stay with us for 24 to 48 hours, and then tell you tell me how easy it is to be homeless. You'll get a really a full view of what it's like to be homeless. I'll play a tent up for you. When asked what kind of help he needs the most? Housing, of course. Mental health and also addiction, help with addiction. Their idea is, okay, this going to throw you into a rehab. Rehabs only work if you're mentally and physically ready and, and can handle that quit. There's people out here that are mentally ill that they can't go into. They get nervous about places like that. I can't deal with it. And what I would just say is just work with us. No, don't give us handouts. Don't make it easy for us. I don't expect to be able to, you know, just walk right into a house and say, well, thanks, guys, for giving me all this. I'm willing to work for it. Maybe make a program where you go out and you give back. You work 20 hours a week for the city or something like that to, you know, make yourself feel like you, you know, earned your way in. I'd have no problem working for the city 20, 30, 40 hours. They give me a place to stay. I work for free whenever they want. In fact, Maud's Cafe in Salt Lake City seems to follow that exact model. In partnership with Volunteers of America and Department of Workforce Services, they run the only paid internship program for homeless youth in Utah. This is Tanya Montagna, who runs the cafe. We have two different programs. It's a first half and a second half. The first half is basic cafe skills, where they get to learn how to run the cafe and make beautiful beverages and sandwiches every day. And then the second half of the program is more of a, um, like a management side of the program, where we kind of teach them how to be more responsible for inventory, the tills, they get to help train the new trainees that come in, try and teach them money management skills, how to keep going in life. Difficulties is just keeping them here, getting them through the system, mm -hmm. um, trying to keep them out of being in the streets. Some of them come to us with very emotional problems. Some of them come to us with drug issues. Try to keep them sober as much as possible. This is Rex again. I started out here at the shelter, and the shelter here, I'm sorry, it's not, I can't say it's anybody's fault, was a cesspool. Drugs, violence, just, nah, I couldn't deal with it anymore. They just basically send you on your way. You're just a number to them. I had no idea about half the resources or how to get half the resources. I was on a list for three years for housing and never got called for nothing. Never got called up. I checked daily, checked weekly. We're homeless. We're unsheltered. We're no different. We just want to be treated as individuals instead of being treated like a group, like we're savages and stuff. Sometimes we have been fairly judged because there are the bad you know, members out there, bad groups. But as a whole, we're good people. We have problems. I didn't even know I had a mental illness for years. And that's what got me out here because 
I, I didn't know. I was just always angry, and I had an alcohol problem, and it just got worse and worse and worse. I was faced with so many barriers just for the fact that I was homeless. I got shut down, shut out of everything, and judged. I gave up completely. I just said, okay, society doesn't want me, so I don't want society. But we, we need your help. We don't need a handout. We need a hand up. Some of the most talented people, some really intelligent people, I know are homeless. Some of the best people I've met in my life are homeless. But when you're walking down the road and look at me, you may look at me and see some dirty guy, but you also you might see a dirty guy with a college degree. He's doing his own business, was successful, but just didn't know how to handle a mental illness and how to get help and let it take over his life. Really, guys, be careful who you're judging because everybody's one mistake, one bad decision for being homeless. This is Alabama. It's hard to see people broke down and, and hurt and, and cold and hungry and then... Do you have a cigarette, sugar? You know. All I know is uh, uh, we are the people, too. And so we should be able to live like we want to do and not have anybody in this free world to tell us what to do, how to do it, when to do it, or anything else. You know, I don't want anybody telling me I can go somewhere, I can't go somewhere. If oil and money are more important than people, then I don't know what to tell you. I'm grateful to be able to be out here because they said told me to go to the shelter. If I go to the shelter, they have the virus at the shelter. Down there, I went down to the shelter. Like they said, the lady from the clinic called and told them. Now, when I got there, they had no idea who she was. And so they were catching things on fire, and people were yelling in there. And I had PTSD and anxiety like no other. And so I couldn't, I didn't feel safe there. I didn't feel comfortable. People are arguing, screaming, and yelling. And I have to get away from it because I have a bad time with it, really strong. But I'm just trying to do what I know to do. I don't know. I'm just trying to survive. can't worry about all that other stuff. I'm worried about getting day-to-day and, and getting a a tarp on my tent so it doesn't get wet so all my stuff gets wet and ruined again and get pneumonia and 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 because it's damp and wet and i'm still trying to worry about the garbage and everything else in the world so not easy so i'm not too worried about who's responsible for a garbage can or anything like that you know i'm worried about people and the kids and and stuff and, and i don't know i get upset alabama has been living on the streets of salt lake city for past few years I thank Ty Bellamy with Black Lives for Humanity for facilitating the interviews with Rex and Alabama.